listening to the Tune In Talk podcast, episode 7, interview with voice actor Ronald M. Banks. Hello and welcome to the Tune and Talk podcast, your rendezvous for animation interviews. I am your host, Whitney Grace, and as always, I am so pleased to have you with me today. Today's guest is a voice actor named Ronald M. Banks. Ron, as he prefers to be called with friends, is a actor with many years of experience. He has played Jafar at the Disney California Adventure, Aladdin Musical Spectacular for over seven years, but he's also been on various tours across the U.S. Some of his favorite roles include The King and I as the King, of course, Sweeney and Sweeney Todd, and he's also played in Avita in various roles in that part. He wants to expand his career a bit more by giving voiceover a shot, and he decided to do that, and lo and behold, he earned himself a prime role in the legendary fighting game Mortal Kombat. The first Mortal Kombat game premiered back in 1992 in arcades across the United States, and it became notorious for heads ripping off, large intestines dribbling on the ground, and other vital organs not being donated. Try as they might, censors have failed to ban the game, and gamers have reveled in the gore and the blood for the past few decades. I remember playing it a few times, and, well, let's just say... I was scarred in my youth. Ron plays the villainous sorcerer Quan Chi, who will rip your head off and send you to another dimension at the same. Ron is a very nice guy. He does tend to be cast as villains a lot. Makes you wonder. But before we hit the starting bell in this interview, let's knock out some of this housekeeping. You get it? I was doing a Mortal Kombat pun there. Anyway, if you have been listening to the Tune and Talk podcast, you know I have been slowly working my way into the social media networks. The Tune and Talk Facebook page is up and running. Yay! And if you like the podcast, why not give us a like on Facebook? Not only will it keep you up to date on what's going on Tune and Talk... I'll also appreciate it. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, and I am still working on that, but follow us, and you will be getting constant updates in that as well. As you know, I used to run a podcast called The Animation Interviews with the fantastic crew over at the Rotoscopers. People have been asking me about some of the older episodes, and I have made those available in a Google Dropbox folder. I have posted a link to that at tuneintalk.com. Those old episodes will be up for a while, but since they are really great interviews, I will be recycling them throughout this year as the Tune and Talk, you know, when I have a light week or I'm on vacation or something. So download them while they are available. If you are interested in supporting the Tune and Talk podcast, there are a couple things you can do. As always, you can follow us on Stitcher Radio or in iTunes. And if you want to make me extremely happy, you know what you could do? You could leave a rating and a review. For every person that leaves a rating and for every person that reads, leaves a review, not only will I read the review on the Tuna Talk podcast, and I'll give you a shout out, but you'll touch that warm place in my heart. And as they say every Christmas... That is something that keeps giving. And here's something brand new. Tune and Talk is officially supported by Audible.com. If you're like me, you're extremely busy. When I am not writing, I want to be reading. But as you know, 
one can't always be reading. So what I do is I love to listen to audiobooks. And Audible offers the internet's largest audiobook library. And from my experience, libraries are very limited in their offerings of audiobooks. But with Audible, all you have to do is subscribe for a 30-day, I mean, that is a 30-day free trial period, and you get a free download. Give Audible a try and sign up today, and I'll put the link in the show notes. And as always, Tune in Talk is so happy to be sponsored by the Fanboy Nation magazine, your rendezvous for geeky news. So without further ado, let us get into the interview with Mr. Ronald M. Banks, also known as Quan Chi, the villain sorcerer. And I'm going to start this interview with the question I ask everyone. Sir, what makes you a... Oh, please introduce yourself, of course. And please tell all the listeners what makes you a great guest to appear on the Tune and Talk podcast. Oh, well, my name is Ron Banks. And I don't know, to be a great guest on the Tune and Talk podcast, I think just uh, making my contribution to uh, the... Uh, to voiceover uh, through my work as an actor, uh, I think is a pretty good reason. It sounds like uh, Tune In Talk is all about what we do in voiceover. So, Yeah, the Tune In Talk podcast is totally dedicated to anyone with an interesting story straight from the animation industry. That's the tagline, your rendezvous for animation interviews. But we also <laughs> talk to writers, uh, basically anyone. I mean, I would talk to the janitor from Pixar if they wanted me to. So <laughs> That's cool. And the fact that you would say rendezvous, R-O-N-dezvous, that's kind of, sorry, cheesy joke, but. Uh. Not a problem. <laughs> so, Mr. Ronald M. Banks, Ron for short, you have such an illustrious career. You sing, you dance, you act. So you're a triple threat, but now you're a quadruple threat because now you are a voice over artist. Where would people recognize you the most from your voice acting career? Probably uh, two ways. One, simply through uh, my voiceover work, since I've done three, uh, including this most recent Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat X, uh, the previous two, Mortal Kombat 2011 and uh, Mortal Kombat versus the DC Universe, that's gone out to millions and millions of people around the world. So the thing is, they may recognize my voice as the character of Quan Chi, but they may not necessarily identify it with me specifically. Um, secondarily is the seven and a half years I worked playing Jafar in Aladdin, a musical spectacular Disney California adventure to, uh, packed houses. Most of the time, that's a couple thousand people at a time. Again, they may not, because we don't have any, uh, uh, programs at Aladdin. They wouldn't necessarily connect me, but you know, in this age of social media, people find you. They'll find you if they want to, badly enough. And then I got posted on YouTube. Uh, my performance at Jafar is all over YouTube. So that's that's now to millions of people. So that would probably be the thing I'm known best for. In theater circles, I am known best for playing the king in The King and I. That's the role I've done the most around the country, a couple of national tours, uh, many regional productions in various places around the country. Um, and then my work at, at uh, East West Players, Sweeney Todd, that was one of my favorite gigs. So. so were you actually Sweeney Todd? I was. I was Sweeney. Oh, cool. What did it feel like to murder people? Oh, you know, with my kind of voice, I, I always seem to end up getting cast as the villains. It's very satisfying. It's very cathartic. And you get to run around and chew the scenery and be angry and get all of that out of your... I'm actually a pretty calm guy in real life. Um, yeah, based on uh, the persona you're emoting right now, I can see you're a very calm dude. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty neat that you get to play the bad guy. I mean, I wouldn't mind playing the bad guy on occasion. I mean, I wouldn't mind playing Ursula at the Walt Disney Parks. I think I would be pretty good at that. Yeah, but the bad guys have a lot of the fun. They mm -hmm. really do. And they're very important to almost any story, even a Disney story. 
Uh, for instance, in Aladdin, if if Jafar wasn't there, there would be no story. The the bad guy in that in Aladdin pretty much drives the story. He does. <sighs> And I was wondering, I have seen videos of the Aladdin Spectacular at Disneyland, and I know that there's one part where the genie just kind of, well, basically in all the parts where he just kind of razzes and roasts Jafar. How do you keep a straight face during that? (laughs) That's one of the most asked questions that I get, especially from people who have seen the show and see how fantastically funny the the talented actors improvisational actors and comics who play the genie are um part of it is as i really get into telling the story and at this point despite what they're saying to me that may be perceived as funny i'm totally into being jafar and basically this is just a big blue dork who's keeping me from my ultimate goal which is to get the lamp and to get ultimate power so i can just go to that little place in myself and get just a little bit irritated irritated by that and uh one of the fun things in all the years that i did jafar i was i never broke not once and i sort of became known for that and the second thing and this is much more a mundane reason is you have to realize i often hear these jokes over and over and over um, and even the funniest joke loses its humor uh, when you hear it a lot. So, And the third thing is, I think, is my job up there as Jafar is to be the straight man. We talk about comics and having a straight man, Abbott and Costello, uh, um, uh, Martin and Lewis. You always got to have the straight guy in there that helps make the, the comedy even more funny. So if I was breaking up at the genie's jokes, it wouldn't serve the story, and it would be less funny for the genies. So... They, they were all, many of them, many of the genies I worked with were very pleased to work with me as their Jafar because their jokes landed even better. The more pissed off I became as Jafar, the funnier it was to the audience because we love to see a jerk, you know, get it in the end. The character of Jafar where I know the story and at least I know Jafar's motivation, that he wants the lamp, he wants the power. He's heard the legend of the lamp um, and for whatever reason, he just needs that power and wants to rule the world. And that creates a sort of obsessive uh, quality to the character that drives the the action forward. With Quan Chi, I'm still not quite sure how he fits in the whole story of Mortal Kombat X. Uh, I haven't had time to actually. Someone's going to gather all of the cutscenes, the the exposition, the story scenes, and put them together on YouTube, and then I'll then I'll uh, look at it. Otherwise, I'd have to actually play the game, and that would <laughs> that would that'd be very inefficient. That would take far too long. <laughs> Well, the great thing about fighting games is you can kind of mash buttons around, and if you're playing with a person who is equally as new as you, then you guys can kind of practice being each other up. To uh, Forgive me, people, listeners, if I'm getting this reference wrong, but the original version, when they brought it over to the U.S., they had to take the blood out but, and make it silver. If I'm getting that wrong, I pop fix that in the show notes, um, but... What do you think of the violence? Because I was watching the new trade, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> yes, that's not right. Uh, I actually uh, did some investigating online too, and one of the articles, one of the reviews, was specifically referencing the kind of gore that's in Mortal Kombat. Um, but it was a good review, and the one thing they liked is that it is so over the top. It's almost like Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it's less gory, as in disturbing gory, as like you'd see in Saw in the Saw movies, and more uh, Quentin Tarantino Pulp Fiction-type gore that is so over the top you just can't help laugh. And I can just imagine uh, teenage and 20-something, 30-something guys fighting each other in their living room, rolling on the floor laughing when someone, like one of my uh, co-workers at Disney who plays the game and who's geeking out by the fact that his friend is the voice of Quan Chi, sent me a clip of him killing Quan Chi and he's got this spinning sword and basically it cuts off the front of Quan Chi's face and then part of his neck and it's like he's going through a Cuisinart and there's blood flying everywhere and the the sound effects are so specific and squishy and detailed that even I, I, I couldn't get grossed out by that. I just, I had to laugh. I had to chuckle. It was so, it was so ridiculous. And so the review said the same thing, that, that Mortal Kombat finds that balance between putting the a lot of gore in but uh, making it fun at the same time and funny. <laughs> I know. I've never 
you, you always people always flinch when you say that gore is funny, and but you're absolutely or it can be. One of the things that made me just wince from the trailer was when that guy t- like he ripped. He shot a hole through the guy's stomach, and then he took the guy's spine and then just cracked it in half. And I was like, that's not conceivably possible. Yeah. And at some point when you look at it, because it is so detailed, it looks like an anatomy lesson. I used to be a nurse, and there were pictures of that kind of anatomy, full-color pictures, in my nursing books and in medical practice. It's like, it was like Grey's Anatomy, not the, not the television show, but the, the actual Grey's Anatomy uh, uh, anatomy book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much like that. It becomes almost clinical. They also have that X-ray move where you can you do something to someone, and all of a sudden it'll flash to the X-ray, and you'll see what's happening inside. Like you kick somebody in the knee, and you'll see what's happening in, inside the knee. Um, wow, that's wow. kind of funny too. And that, that that's not new. I remember uh, Cinderella Man, uh, Ron Howard's movie. He did the same thing. Uh, uh, the the main character who was a boxer gets punched is played by russell crowe he gets punched in the ribs and just for a second ron howard flashes to an x-ray of the of russell crowe's ribs getting cracked and then flashes out now at that time i thought it was dumb i thought that didn't add anything to the movie but for mortal Kombat, is just another in a long line of um i think traditions that this the the, the gore uh, uh in the uh in the franchise is sort of brought about mm-hmm. what i find amazing is how much just gaming technology has changed from the 90s. I remember playing 16-bit with sprites, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then the next thing I know, I'm playing Final Fantasy X. I'm like, this is amazing. And then we see Mortal Kombat, and then all these other games, and I'm like, wow. (laughs) It's, I don't know where it's going to end. And what I wonder is, when it comes to CGI and animation and real life, drama or acting and stuff they're getting so close now so i wonder when it's going to just completely merge or if there's going to be a fine line or what yeah that, that's a good question i think if, if it ever gets to the point to where you're talking about where it becomes so realistic that you cannot tell the cgi performer from the real performer we might lose something um uh, again we're, we're talking about sometime in the future it probably happened since uh, technology is growing exponentially. But we, I think we'll lose something. Uh, either on one end it's going to seem too real and it's starting to get uncomfortable, or on the other end it's just going to not quite be right. Uh, I, I heard a thing on NPR about robotics, and the, the more human the robotic robots get, the creepier they become. Um, it's almost like we want them to not be quite so rendered so realistically. And I think... Even the best video game still looks like a video game, and we find comfort in that. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're going to do something with a lot of violence and a lot of gore. You're absolutely right. So, let me ask you a couple, a few questions about your performance. I mean, you're a voice actor, you're a stage actor, and have you done any sort of film or TV work? Mm-hmm. A couple of things. I did a, a little bit of film work. Uh, a couple of short films, one called No Connections, and I played a Japanese man. Um, no Connections was written, uh, basically transcribed from an English-Japanese phrase book. Um, so it's kind of disjointed. It's almost like, uh, uh, what do you call it, kind of a cutting-edge theater where you're not really sure where the plot is going. And then I did voiceover on a movie called, uh, a little short called, uh, what is it, Crazy for You? Um, it's on IMDb and and the differences between all three of them is is just a lot of its technique, a lot of its motivation, um, in a film and in television, you have to back off a little bit. I have a, I have a voice that projects and that works well on stage, even with enhancement, even with the microphone, partly because when you're projecting your voice, you're not just, you're also projecting your character and in a big house, you need to do that. Even if you have a microphone. Uh, in film and television, you really have to cut back. And same thing with voiceover. Certain kinds of copy that I read for commercials that are background voice to a, a picture, my voice cannot be the, the distraction. It has to enhance what you're seeing. So then we're, you're pulling it back and, and you get less and less. That's a bit of a challenge for me because I've, I, I started in opera for like 20 years and it's basically um, all about projecting the voice. So. 
Yeah. But you learn to be yeah. you learn to be you learn to be flexible. You learn to be uh, adaptable. Um, it's a it's a way to have a, a a better career. Which one do you find still gives you the greatest challenge? Oh wow, they all have their own challenges. The greatest challenge, probably voiceover, simply because I came to that last, and I've only been doing it comparatively for the last few years, four or five years. And while it is sort of an outgrowth of acting and and, and vocal production. Uh, it is also own it, it. It's also its own kind of uh, beast and technique, and you have to do considerations. Where I've been acting on stage for like thirty years now, um, and and uh, little less than that in film and television. So that's probably it. And that's what the thing I'm doing now. I feel pretty comfortable on stage. The challenge on stage is you're doing the same story over and over each night, and you have to make it seem fresh and real each night, no matter how many times you've done it. And I had a lot of experience doing that as Jafar because I did like we did. I would do two to four shows a day, four days a week for seven years. So it, it can, you know, it, you, you can't let it just be rote. Otherwise, people can see that. One of the problems I've seen a lot of shows, and I'm, I mean, I've seen a lot. Uh, a lot of them are traveling productions, and one of the biggest things that I find fault with them is that they don't emote. It's like they're just going through the motions. And I'm not saying they're doing a bad job. Uh, I've just seen so many. I can tell when they're putting the emotion in and when they're not. How difficult is that to keep up fresh and everything? What are some techniques and stuff that you do so that it does remain fresh and exciting? Uh, A lot of it has to do with the techniques we learn in acting school. And some people don't even have to go to acting school for this. And there's things like the... um, Meisner technique and uh, Stanislavski's old uh, techniques, but those are—I don't think people use those much anymore. A lot of it is just—we call it staying in the moment and uh, treating each moment as though it's new. Now, of course, you know in the background it, that you're on stage and you're, you're doing a part, so it's not completely new. But you can place it in—you uh, can behave like it is new to you simply by listening to the other person, the other actors uh, around you. In Aladdin, it was easy because there are multiple casts. Um, I mean, you can't do that many shows with the same people without wearing them down. So I don't think it's any big secret to say that there are multiple casts. Uh, And so I would be with different actors from one show to the next, oftentimes. And everybody's got a little bit of different take on uh, what they're doing. And even if it's the same actor from day to day in theater, nobody does it exactly the same every time. So that helps to keep it real. Uh, as an actor, it's my job to find the energy and make sure I have the energy to keep it up, whatever I'm doing uh, on stage. Uh, that's just part of, it's like training to be anything, training to be a doctor, training to be uh, a lawyer. There's things that you do to, to make sure that you do it well. And then with acting, it's, it's bringing energy to your interpretation. I have heard that there are moments on stage when you just blank you just get like a big giant brain hiccup and you forget everything that's going around you and stuff like that has that ever happened to you oh god yes it started to get irritating i've been doing aladdin for seven years it's a 45 47 minute show jafar is in it for about 15 minutes his dialogue adds up to about four minutes and he's got 45 seconds of singing and there would still be times i'd get out there and completely blank uh, and it would just be it would just be irritating. I mean, I don't know. Maybe my hard drive is full and needed to be reformatted or something in my brain. But that happens every so often. And you just do your best to play it off. Um, half the time, so long as you don't let it show that you don't remember what's going on, nobody else is going to know. The one thing about Aladdin is that people come to see it over and over and over and over and over. So they've all memorized your lines too. But then oftentimes they're they're rooting for you. And if you come up some clever way to get out of the fact that you you spaced for a second they're they're right with you and they find it funny has it ever happened to you in your other shows such as the king and i or sweeney todd you know that's the funniest thing there are like 50 times more lines in king and i and sweeney todd and i don't think i hardly forgot ever anything for some reason when you're up there and you're involved a lot um yeah i don't know why that is I, I just recently did The King and I a couple of years ago again. I reprised the role in Torrance, and it was like I, I'd never left it. Um, I don't know what it is about having a, a, a lot of lines. I don't, maybe that just makes you concentrate more. 
Um, I, I did uh, King Arthur and Camelot, same thing. Tons and tons and tons of lines, and it was easy not to forget them. Whereas the the little roles, those are the ones that kind of bite you in the butt. When you when you did Quan Chi, I know that with video game, there's a lot of, I guess you could say, grunts and sound effects you have to make. How did you get do those? I mean, I know, I've talked to other voice actors and who do voice over for games, and some of them ask to, can we do the screaming and the grunts and the growls for later because it hurts my voice? What about you? Um, the director, Dominica, he's very considerate of that, and he actually saved those to the end, uh, which is good because after you've done that kind of screaming and grunting, um, it can have an effect on your voice, and it's harder to do the quiet things and the the more um, the more intricate kinds of things that you need to do with your voice uh, once you <laughs> once you basically what they call it blow it out by screaming and yelling on it. Uh, because of my work in opera, I have a, a fairly strong technique, vocal breath support. And how to place my voice so I can do those kinds of screaming and yelling, make those loud sounds over and over. It comes from opera. Um, and not hurt myself. So uh, it's basically keeping in vocal shape. And I don't know about other voice actors. This is just my particular past. But I, I'm a voice teacher as well. And so I teach people how not only to sing using good breath support, but to speak the same way they sing using good breath support. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're going to scream for an hour, no matter how great your breath support is, you're going to have issues with your voice. It's going to start, you know, it's going to start sounding worse, especially if you need to do singing that sounds beautiful. But there's a way to train yourself so that you don't ruin your voice. Uh, there are uh, um, there are operas that are four hours long uh, that people are singing, and yeah, the Wagnerian operas are four hours long. That's basically kind of shouting. It's not really screaming and grunting. Those are different uh, kinds of effects, but it's using the voice in a powerful way for a long, long time. And those people still have voices at the end of it, so there's a way to do it. There's also a voice teacher she, in New York. She's uh, an opera voice teacher, but she trains um, heavy metal singers and rock singers who scream into the microphone. We all know about the screaming in, in, in rock music. And to do it in such a way that they don't ruin their voices, that they could come back and do it again in a couple of three nights. Uh, same thing with Broadway, eight nights a week. It is possible to train yourself to do that. However, um, it does become a little hard on the voice at the end, even for myself, because there are certain things you do, grunting, screaming over and over. Uh, the, he would yell at me. He would tell me, okay, now you're going to be on fire, so scream like you're on fire. Okay, now now give me several grunts in a row real quick like this. Uh, 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 and then he would demonstrate himself as though you're being hit in the gut. Uh, and so I would do that. And those were those were tough because you're you're it's called a glottal stop when you go uh 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 that's slapping your cords together that takes its toll that's a physical action that takes its toll and can inflame your vocal cords that's probably more technical than your <laughs> than your your listeners want but uh, <laughs> I think it's interesting interesting oh good because you caught me in my passion because I, I'm now moving to the point where I like to teach. and and it's funny what I'm te what I would be teaching anybody can use if you if you you speak in in the roles that in, in your in your work life. Like if you're at a job where you speak a lot, you can use these techniques to help save your voice. It's not rocket science. It's it's something that it's been tried and true. So, well, maybe I should hire you as my voice coach for the podcast to make me improve my dictation or not my dictation, my elocution and stuff like that. Well, from what I hear, you you seem to use your voice very very well. Oh. you seem to have good breath support. Uh, you enunciate well, which is a good part of it. Uh, you are, that which means you know you're clear in what you're saying, so uh, you're a nice resonance. So, do you do any singing or anything? Like that? No, I do not. Um, I did try out for American Idol at Disney World once, um, but they said uh, you have a nice voice, but you should join a choir if you want to sing. And no, <laughs> I. So that was a nice way of saying you sing off key. Encourage. I always encourage my students to sing, uh, even if you're going to just sing in your car, or sing in the shower, sing. Because the actual act, the physical act of, act of singing is good for you. Yeah, I, I like singing. Um, I like singing alone, and I, like, I love acting. I've never been in a play, but I've always wanted to be in a play. So I, when I'm alone, I practice monologues. Nice. Yeah, that's a start. That's what I did back when I was 20 years old. I would practice monologues even before I ever got on a stage because I thought, oh, I'd like to do this one day. Yeah, Standing and, in my backyard to the cats, I would do monologues from Shakespeare and from musical theater. My only problem is, is when I do the more dramatic ones, um, 
my dogs think I'm in trouble. So then they start jumping up and ruin the dramatic moment trying to save me. <laughs> That's good. It's a good practice for concentration because stuff like that will happen on stage. Your fellow actors will start jumping up and messing. You. And there are actors who will like to try to mess with you just to break you up. So, What are some – do you have any funny stories like that from behind the scenes of any of your productions where someone tried to mess you up but you remain stoic and in character? No, not too much. I've had I've really worked with some really great people and oh <laughs> I was doing a production of Evita and um there was one scene where all the men were on stage and the girls thought it would be cool over on one side of the stage to lift up their tops and on that side of the stage were all the gay men in the chorus. So those of us who were in the chorus who weren't gay were really upset <laughs> because we couldn't see. We were on the other side of the stage. And so I think it was one of the last one of the last performances. Uh, over on our side of the stage, the girls from the chorus came over as a sort of a present to all the straight guys and lifted up their tops for us while we're out there doing our bit <laughs> off stage so the audience couldn't see them. We were so grateful. We, I was so grateful. I, I think I sent them donuts or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, 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 my. Who did you play in Evita? Uh, I played a couple things. Uh, I played, uh, I was in a, a, a national tour where I was in the in the chorus and I played uh, Colonel. Uh, yeah, Colonel Perón, uh, General Perón, yeah, General Perón, uh, Juan Perón, who is uh, eventually became Evita's husband, mm. uh, in, in, as an understudy. I actually went on because uh, it just by a, a fluke, the understudy couldn't do it, and the uh, guy playing Perón got sick, so they they put me on. And then the next time I did Evita, I got to play uh, General Perón. So it's cool. Lloyd Webber, fun, fun stuff. Yeah, the thing about Lloyd Webber is his stuff is so much fun, but I kind of think he's, I think he's past his prime a little bit. Um, I wouldn't say that to his face, but he, it just seems like he's just making the same stuff over and over again. He's uh, He's got his own particular style, and he has his own voice that he's found over the years. And once you get known for something, when you start exploring and trying to expand past that, it's like, if you stick with what you know, at least your fans are happy. But mm-hmm. when you start expanding mm-hmm. it, and if it's not successful, not, not only are the people unhappy who, who don't like you, the people who like you are unhappy because you're not doing the, the stuff that they know. So it's kind of like a lose-lose situation. It takes a lot. I, I have a lot of respect for composers like Lloyd Webber and John Williams who are always trying to, you know, to push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you get to that sort of level... A lot of people are relying upon you. It becomes, you know, a business enterprise, and any any kind of movie or show or entertainment endeavor is a risk financially. Unfortunately, we can't. There's no such thing as a sure thing. So. Not at all. Um, except with Frozen, we can say that whatever <laughs> product that Disney makes related to Frozen will probably be a surefire hit for the next few years. Probably. Frozen is one of those phenomena. It's funny to talk about that because I'm, I'm studying this right now, entertainment communications. It's one of those phenomena, those franchise tentpole movies that maybe wasn't intended to be when it started. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now it's going to have a life that will go on for days like Star Wars. You know, Star Wars came out in 77 and we're talking, you know, 40 years ago now, uh, almost 40 years ago. And it's uh, it's still generating more content more revenue and the stories around it just keep on growing and growing. And that that's that's rare. That doesn't come along all that often. Well, yeah. I think the last time Disney had such a big hit was with The Lion King in 94. Mm. Uh, I mean, I want to say that The Lion King is equal, if not Frozen, is more successful than The Lion King. Because Lion King then, we were in the 90s, they didn't have as much expand with the digital content and stuff like that so this way with frozen you can connect with the movie on more levels than just by going to the theater and buying the toys exactly exactly and, that, and that's what you hope for in that and you know you gotta you gotta hand it to the people who created that the the writers and uh, the people who composed the music and the animators uh, something that's going to go on and give give joy to people for a long long time it will now Quan Chi, do you think he will give people joy for a long, long time? I don't know. Um, uh, I'm going to do a spoiler alert here, so warn your your listeners that to, if they don't want to hear this, if they haven't played the game yet. But from what I saw in the script, um, Quan Chi dies. So I think that's already put out there. And uh, so whether or not he goes on, it's funny. When we finished reading, the director said to me, uh, he, he was thanking me for my contribution and... Uh, 
expressed how much he liked my work and that he would like to have me back. Uh, as it stands, though, he, Quan Chi's now dead, but he said, you never know in this, these kinds of stories that people come back all the time. I mean, how many times did Spock die in, in the Star Trek movies? <laughs> he kept coming back. So, Well, yeah, and if we're talking the Marvel Universe and the DC Universe, I mean, Disney now owns Marvel, so everybody dies in Marvel, and it's a big thing, and then <laughs> DC, everyone dies, and it's a big thing, and then, whoa, behold, Superman was buried in underground, or it was a clone of Jean Grey, or Kitty Pride managed to save herself by going intangible, whatever. Everybody comes back. And, you know, if they don't come back through uh, story means, we're always rebooting things. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have we rebooted the basic story of Superman with a new actor? And now we're going to have a new Batman with Ben Affleck? Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be everybody's. I haven't seen, I haven't uh, done too much investigating on that yet, but boy, it's co- prompted a lot of strong feelings from people. They had George Clooney. They had, um, who's the guy who played Beetlejuice? Michael. Michael Keaton. Yeah, they had Michael Keaton play Batman. I mean, you know, whatever. It's just when he was, the movie I'm basing off the last superhero movie he did, which was Daredevil. It wasn't that good. Right, I remember that. And yeah, my wife uh, actually, she's a big fan of, of those kinds of stories, a bigger fan of, of like Marvel and uh, action stories than I am. And so she went and saw the Daredevil. Um, she she was not too unimpressed, but it was not one of the best. So um, the interesting thing is the Daredevil is now on Netflix. So. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk violence? I'm hearing that the Daredevil on Netflix is extremely violent. One of the most violent things they've ever put on television, apparently. Not television. It's a subscription package that you buy for. So they're allowed to do a lot more stuff than they could on cable. Right. Even though we actually watch it on a television screen. But yeah, I guess people are watching it on, on iPads and computer screens and stuff. So Yeah. It's a pay-for-service like HBO. So you get what you pay for. And they can do whatever they want. Um, Speaking of HBO, you were talking about the violence in uh, uh, Mortal Kombat. You know, I just uh, I don't have HBO, but my wife and I binge watched season four of Game of Thrones. I thought the I thought the gore in Game of Thrones was certainly the same, not quite as as uh, anatom- anatomically graphic as as uh, uh, Mortal Kombat X, but certainly the same kind of I thought using that the violence and the gore as part of the story. It is. And that's the thing these days is people expect there to be some sort of violence, gore, um, sex, special effects, what have you may. They expect it at this point. So I think that um, people in the entertainment industry are looking for new ways to top themselves or to top the past. Yeah, uh, that's always... That's always what we're trying to do in entertainment. You're only as good as your last hit. Um, uh, case in point, I think, is the Bonnie and Clyde movie from, what, the 1960s or the 1970s? Oh, yeah, yeah. Faye Dunaway, yeah, absolutely. It was rated X. And then nowadays, um, they can show that in the classroom because it's nothing compared to something like Mortal Kombat. Back to the voice acting from Mortal Kombat. Um, back to the grunts and everything. Did they just give you a list of all the types of grunts they wanted? Like oh, this is your eye being ripped out, or oh, this is your head being chopped off, or this is your gullet, and they just wanted you to do different ones for each one? No, he was, uh, the director was very specific. He said he would describe what was happening to me. Okay, pretend you're on fire and you're screaming, or pretend you're screaming now like you're falling off a cliff, or pretend you're being hit in the gut like several times in a row. Um, Pretend that you, uh, and then he would give me that specific instruction, and that would help me find what kind of uh, a screen. And sometimes he would demonstrate himself and do it in his own voice. And the interesting thing is that uh, he wasn't in the same uh, location as I was. We did it through an ISDN feed, and he was actually directing me. Uh, I was in a studio on the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, I mean North Hollywood, and he was in Chicago. Uh, and so he was directing me on, on online, and so I could just hear him in my headphones. We call them cans, and I would just basically yeah. give him what he wanted. Are you finding that a lot more of the voiceover work you're going to is you're doing it remotely while it's being sent to somewhere else? Yeah, the last couple times, in fact, that happened on, on Mortal Kombat. And in fact, I know of voiceover actors who have a... <laughs> Who I, I've, I guess after they have a big job or something, or they have a lot of disposable income, will basically create a sound studio in their home, 
because uh, that's the biggest, the hardest thing about um, recording things in your own house is finding silence. Uh, I live on a busy street. Yeah, and that's why I use just like you there. And it's funny because your closet looks more and more like it's my wife's walk-in closet. So even the kinds of clothes that I'm seeing here are what is in my recording studio. And I've got my my high-end microphone set up in there, and I, I just take my uh, my laptop for the copy, and I close the door and close the window. I've, I've even got double-paned windows on the house to, to block out some of the noise. And then the rest of it's taken care of by my wife's clothes. She must have and, good taste. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least they're sound-absorbing clothes. That's a good thing. <laughs> but... The, 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 there are guys who are just ripping out whole rooms in their houses and uh, putting on this acoustic absorbing sound type material inside the walls and inside the room itself. And then they can make studio quality recordings because sometimes if you send in an audition, that studio quality, and if they like your interpretation good enough, they can just use that right there and just send you the money. You don't have to go to, uh, uh, you don't have to go to a studio and, and, uh, Send it in. That's usually for stuff that's like short commercials, 30-second spots. But I, I can't imagine. It doesn't happen that often because most directors like to have at least some input on what the actor, what the performer is doing um, in, a, in a live manner. Wow. I never – that's something – that's news to me. I never know that you could just record the audition and then they might like what you did. And if it's quality enough, that's – Wow. Yeah, it doesn't happen that often because there's not that many of us that I know of that have. Usually you have to get to a certain level. I mean, the people who like work for The Simpsons probably have something like that in their home. So <laughs> get to a certain level where you, have the, where you have the revenue in order to create something like that. Because it's, it's not just uh, making the room quiet. It's all the, uh, the high-end microphone and the computer programming. Actually becoming good at using the, the recording mm-hmm. software. Yeah. Yeah, that can be that can be a little tricky. I'm still I use a GarageBand to edit all my podcasts and stuff like that. But there are just sometimes where I'm just learning new and new things all the time with this podcast, just to make it better every time. And it it's, it can be difficult. Yeah, but that's the great thing is that you can. That we they've given us the power to learn. Um, they throw us curveballs though. I use GarageBand for a lot of if like if I'm doing a a voiceover audition. And I need to splice things together, and I use GarageBand. But every it's, they've updated it like three times, and everything keeps changing. And it just makes me nuts because I just learned where the buttons were from, were on the last one, and now they're all in a different place. Yeah, it's annoying. But then again, that's Apple for you. They consistently change stuff, so have to relearn the way they do things. I mean, it's like that with Microsoft, too. But we're getting into the tech thing rather than acting. Where do you expect for your career to go with a voice? I mean, Quan Chi is a pretty big character in the voiceover community. Or Quan Chi is a very big character for video games and Mortal Kombat. Do you hope to one day be a voice in cartoons? Or do you just kind of like where you are at and hope to continue on? I kind of like where I'm at. I'll hope to continue on slowly. I'm sort of going with the flow here. Uh, I've been a little bit active in, in uh, moving my career ahead simply by engaging in these kinds of... Uh, the Quan Chi came out of the blue. My uh, agent had passed away, and I didn't get a new agent, but Warner Brothers still decided to come and find me uh, for this for Mortal Kombat X, for which I'm very, very grateful. Uh, sound engineer there, a very fine sound engineer named Morgan Gerhardt, uh, noticed me and said, why don't you have an, an agency? And I told him why, and he said, well, you need to be having an agency because you should be working a lot more. And so through his connections and moving around town, I got picked up by Vox, Vox USA, one of the bigger voiceover agencies in Southern California. Um, and I've been sending my stuff into them. I haven't booked anything yet. So uh, the part of it is that I think I could be more proactive in my career, uh, setting up a website, going to uh, voiceover workshops and things like that, and just getting my, my face and my voice out there and not relying on things like Mortal Kombat to happen. So, uh, but if they do, you know, then um, I'm certainly, uh, you know, I will, I will ride the wave, as it were. But voiceover is extremely competitive, so um, this is, this is just, just a good reminder for me to get my button gear. Because and, and, uh, you got to network. You get network and promote as much as, as doing the actual voice work. Voice acting is very competitive. Because, I mean, I was talking to a voice actor the other day, and he said the market has opened up so much because of the Internet. But I've also learned that it's a very, very nice community, a very supportive community. And 
is probably one of the best things to do if you want to become an actor out in Hollywood just for general congeniality. Everyone I've met, uh, I went to a, a, a gathering. Uh, it was around the holiday time. Actually, it was uh, yeah, it was around holiday time that Vox put together for all of the people uh, who were represented by the agency just to meet and greet and uh, to say hello. And uh, uh, and everyone was very very nice, very very nice. But <laughs> uh, there's just a lot of people in voiceover. Uh, a lot of people who are still trying to break in, and even technically, my success. It's pretty limited. I've only had a couple of three or four um, offerings between two franchises, World of, Co- Com- World of Warcraft and Mortal Kombat, uh, and a movie, uh, a short film. So, But there are, once, you, once you hit it, once you get known, uh, I actually send a note to Vox saying, God, I hope you guys aren't going to drop me because I haven't booked anything in, in the time I've been here. And they they sent me a very nice email back, very supportive email that said, no, no, it's just very difficult to get um, started in this business, and you got to give yourself time and just keep you know just keep sending on in the auditions and and be persistent. What are you working on now after Quan Chi? Uh, right now, I'm working at Disney as a guest relations host, um, sort of advancing my career there. That's sort of a regular day job that I, I go to after working at. Uh, Aladdin for seven and a half years. Uh, I thought it might be fun to tell stories on a smaller scale, so um, I like to give tours as a guest relations host. I also like to teach, and I teach at Disney, and I teach voice lessons, and I've worked with a speech and debate team here at the college, um, and I've also worked outreach that's basically bringing uh, arts to kids for Pacific Symphony here in Orange County in Southern California, um, which is sort of a passion of mine. And then just to continue, I get uh, several auditions a week from my agency that I, that I record and faithfully send on in. And I'm very blessed to have spoken with a lot of big-name voice actors. But I think you represent more of the voice actor who's still working on their career, who's still has, who's been successful, but is working on improving it every single day. So I'm very thankful to have you on the show to explain to people that voice acting is more is it it can be a daily grind it's a matter of someone you basically have to hoof it if you want to take in the expression from broadway you have to to be a hoofer young hoofer Mm -hmm. yeah uh, you're absolutely right on that it is building a voice career voice acting voiceover career is a marathon it's not a sprint Uh, you just got to keep going back it's like becoming a commercial actor uh commercial actors have it tough. That's one reason I don't do it, because I don't live in the Burbank, Hollywood area. But your agent sends you to, you just go to like five, six, seven, eight, twelve commercial auditions a week until you hit it. And you just keep putting in, you keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. Um, but if you don't put yourself out there, you'll never get, you'll never get discovered. Same thing with, with voiceover. And thankfully, with voiceover, it's much easier. It's just finding the time um, making a decent copy and, and consistently setting it, sending it in. Yeah, it, it's like that for a lot of industries. You just have to keep up the grindstone until you sharpen the blade enough. Exactly. Uh, persistence combined with preparation combined with uh, the ability to be ready when the opportunity appears. And also having the good skills. Yep, that's where the preparation comes in. Yep. So... Mr. Ronald M. Banks, Ron for short, I think we have come to the end of an interview, but you have to answer the final question that I ask all guests on the Tuna Doc podcast. Are you ready for it? Yes. With bated breath? Yes. Oh, sounds like a Jafar voice going on there. <laughs> Do you, Mr. Ronald M. Banks, have anything to declare? <laughs> you mean like from uh, like uh, in the voice of something, or uh, you can do whatever you want to declare? Oh, guys, if you're going to be in voiceover, just you know, just keep at it. And in the immortal words of, in the immortal words of Mortal Kombat X's Quan Chi, you shall see my worst. <laughs> awesome! Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome.
Welcome to the bottom of the Tune and Talk podcast. And once more, I would like to thank Mr. Ronald M. Banks for appearing on the show. As with all my guests, I had a great time talking with you. But I especially enjoyed our conversation because you gave me some very good insights on what it is like to start out in the voice acting community, as well as some tips on my voice, which I am always looking to improve the quality and sound of the podcast. And so I will start singing now. Me, 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 me. But for my ears only, trust me, you will thank me. Today, I also have a very special thank you for my editor-in-chief over at fanboynation.com for arranging this particular interview with Ron. Tune and Talk is sponsored by Fanboy Nation, and oh, it's time for a bumper. Excelsior in Paris Rex. Live long and prosper. Up, up, and away. Now that's my personal favorite. Fanboy Nation is go. Welcome to Fanboy Nation magazine, the home of all things fanboy, and fangirl, not just the same stuff you can get anywhere else. Only at Fanboy Nation will we go beyond the generic questions of, so what's your favorite pencil? What kind of strings do you use? And how did it feel when you put on X costume? We give you insight into the lives of the artists, producers, the movers, the shakers, the indies, up-and-comers, the bigwigs, and most importantly, the little guys. If you haven't gotten yourself over to fanboynation.com, you need to do it today. If you are interested in coming into contact with me, Whitney Grace, your host, you can reach me in a couple of ways. You could send me an email at tuneintalk at gmail.com, or you connect, can connect with me at Twitter at StorySequence or at tune and talk i would love to hear your comments reviews raves well maybe not so much as raves and rantings but send me your opinions of the show and you know what i really really want to hear i want to hear who you want to have on the show or if you are doing anything related to animation a project a new cartoon, you're a voice actor, or if you are the janitor at Pixar, I want to hear your stories. Drop me an email, and we can get you hooked up on the show. For a summary of the Tune and Talk podcast, you can visit us at www.tuneandtalk.com or www.fanboynation.com and click on podcasts. You'll be able to find the show notes as well as links to some content related to Ron M. Banks, including his IMDb page, his personal website, as well as his brand new Twitter account. Also, if you are interested in showing your support for the show... You could sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com. Also, if you are interested in purchasing the Mortal Kombat X video game, which, if you're a gamer and you're like me, you definitely want to play it now after you're listening to Ron, I will post an Amazon affiliate link to that in the show notes as well. So now if you'll excuse me... I'm going to go play some Mortal Kombat X and get an anatomy lesson at the same time. I'll see you in episode 8, everyone. Mm-hmm.